I'm feeling all sorts of nostalgic and pretty excited right now because today's episode of Hurdle, episode 51, is pretty special. My name is Emily Abadi. You are listening to Hurdle, a podcast that talks to everyone from entrepreneurs to CEOs and athletes about how they got through tough times, hurdles of sorts, by leaning into wellness. Today's episode is with the one, the only, Catherine Switzer. And if you've never heard her name, your mind's about to be blown because in 1967, she became the first woman to complete the all-male race of the Boston Marathon as an official entrant, which makes today's episode pretty appropriate because unless you've been living under a rock, you know that today, April 15th, is the Boston Marathon. I am so amped for this. Before I give you some deets on Catherine, a quick shout out to my sponsor, Athletic Greens. With 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, Athletic Greens is a delicious greens powder that I shake up every single day that helps me start the day off right. They're offering Hurdle listeners a special deal. It's 20 free travel packs, a $79 value, absolutely free with your first purchase. Trust me, this is an offer you're going to want to jump on stat. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to claim it. No code necessary. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. All right, now let's talk about Catherine. Let me tell you, when I started the podcast at the end of 2017, I was just about to start training for Boston. And when the time came for me to run the race, I was super, I don't know if bummed is the right word, but a little down on myself that I didn't think about reaching out to this epic figure in running. When I first heard about Catherine Switzer, it was from uh, Jen Eder. She was the fitness director at Women's Health. She just announced that she's the new editor-in-chief of Women's Running. And we were walking through Central Park and filming some content for Rodale leading up to the New York City Marathon. And there were banners lining that final stretch leading up to the finish line. And on one of the banners was Catherine Switzer's name. And Jen told me all about her story. And as I mentioned, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, but she did it a little bit under the radar, completely unintentionally. Uh, When she signed up for the race, and you'll hear all about this in today's episode, she signed up as K.V. Switzer. It was kind of the nickname that she went by, not really thinking anything of it. And what ended up happening was People weren't exactly excited when they found out that there was a woman on the course come race day. Uh, You'll probably recognize the super famous photo of these race officials literally coming after her with their bare hands. It's, uh, It's crazy. Today's episode is all sorts of inspiring and the things that Catherine is doing now with her legacy and just what she's doing today with her organization 261 Fearless to bring active women together through a global supportive social running network. It's it's really special. Also tried something new this week. This is the first ever hurdle that I've recorded over the phone and I'd actually really love to get your input on this. I know it's something that I, uh, I love sitting down with people in person. It's really personal. Hurdle obviously means a lot to me and I think it's really special to have that in-person connection, but it's not always possible. So sometimes, you know, there are going to be guests that I'm really excited about that I just don't have the opportunity to sit down with in person. And I'm curious to know what you guys think. Do you like the over the phone thing? Does it bother you? Um, You know, 
just give me your feedback. You know the drill at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Hurdle Podcast. If you have a hurdle moment of your own to share or want to just say hi, shoot me a message, feel free to email me, emily at hurdle.us. I am so, so grateful to all of you. Last week was without a doubt the biggest week of a podcast. Uh, I thank you guys for that. I thank Joe Holder, Nike master trainer and performance consultant for giving me his time. I loved interacting with you guys uh, with all of those takeaways that you loved from the episode. And like I said, please keep engaging on Instagram. Keep sending these episodes to your friends. Just share the hurdle love. It, uh, it makes a huge difference. It makes my day. It makes me excited to keep coming back here week after week and sharing with you guys. So it's time to get to Catherine's story. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down over the phone with the lovely Catherine Switzer. It's a special day because this podcast is coming out on Marathon Monday, the day of the Boston Marathon. Thanks so much for giving me your time today, Catherine. Oh, Emily, it's wonderful to be here. And of course, this is the buildup for Big Boston. And uh, what, a, what a day it is. It changes the whole city of Boston. It does. We were both in Boston last year and uh, the uh, weather wasn't ideal. So... I don't know. We're recording this a little before, preemptively, but it seems to me that they're going to have a better time this year. <laughs> well, Emily, I think anybody who was in Boston last year realizes that on Marathon Day, it couldn't get worse. Honestly, <laughs> it was like running in the cold rinse spin cycle of a washing machine for 26 miles, 385 yards. Absolutely. My congratulations to you for actually surviving it. Oh man. Well, it uh it definitely made me stronger, that's to say the least, and I'm happy that uh you know, I completed it and now it's on to the next hurdle. So, I'd love to uh introduce my audience just to your story and and kind of jump into this. I know uh when I first heard your story, I was walking on the New York City Marathon route about 4 years ago with a girlfriend of mine and I saw your name on a banner hanging over the route and she explained it to me and I was just so in awe. So, I don't need to, you know, ramble on about it too much more. Uh, why don't we start with you just talking to me a little bit about how you got into running? Well, it's a wonderful story because it was my dad who encouraged me to run a mile a day to make the field hockey team in my local high school. And I was only 12 years old and leaving elementary school and going to high school. And we, the school had just introduced this sport for women, which is phenomenal. Back, This is the late 50s. And, um, you know, I was insecure. And, and he said, listen, you run that mile a day. You get ready for the team. You'll be one of the best players. And he saw that I was kind of struggling and looking for identity and acceptance. And I did run this mile a day. I did make the team. It was a wonderful experience, you know, playing sports throughout high school. But the important thing was running that mile a day was really magical. And it empowered me and gave me a sense of fearlessness. And I didn't know what it was in those days. I just called it my magic. But I didn't tell too many people about it because I was afraid they'd think I was kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> but I... <laughs> but I would just go off and do this mile a day, no matter what, even though I was playing other sports, because it made me feel kind of like I had a victory under my belt. Nobody could take away from me. And I say, wow, what a great thing that is to have when you're growing up and you're getting, you know, confronted by all kinds of decisions and you know screwy behavior. But honestly, this magic has stayed with me all my life. I've been running for 60 years. And every day I run, I have this 
sense of magic and, and destiny and capability. And that is one reason. We're kind of jumping ahead now. But as we're looking today at the Boston Marathon, half of the field, essentially, I believe it's 49% is women, 51% is men, uh, and a tough race where you have to be qualified. Those Most of those women are running because it makes them feel empowered. They're not running because they have an, a dream of making an Olympic team. They're, they're running for a completely different reason. And the millions of women running in the United States now, especially, which is 58% of all running participants in the United States are women. Now, that's a social revolution. It's because they feel empowered. So that's, that's I wasn't wrong when I was 12. And I have <laughs> really, really kind of dedicated my career now to trying to get every woman I know to just put one foot in front of the other. When I started running as well, I was running at what I thought was a mile every day, but a half mile every day. And it didn't really matter how far that distance was. What mattered at the time was that I was slowly succeeding at something that I thought that I wasn't that good at. Exactly. Because I never, ever in my life felt that I was talented at anything. I mean, I've had to work really hard for everything. But but that little run every day, of course, a mile seems like Kilimanjaro to me. But the that run just gave me the sense, hey, you know, if you can do this, you can do, maybe you can do two miles. You know, or maybe you can try out for the, you know, drama club or something. You know what I mean? Right. It just gave you the next step. And constantly it has been my kind of... Uh, Northern Star as I've gone through life. What does running look like for you these days? Well, it's interesting. You know, we all go through waves in our lives of, of, of transitions, etc. Um, I uh, trained up really hard for the 2017 Boston Marathon, which was uh, my 50th anniversary run, which made me the first woman ever to run a marathon 50 years after she first did, which wow. doesn't make me special. No, it doesn't make me special. It just shows you how few women ran 50 years ago. But the point is, is I did it um, and I did it well. I only did it 24 minutes slower than I did when I was 20. So the body is utterly fantastic. And then I went on that year and also ran the New York City Marathon 43 years after I won it. And then I decided, you know, now I'm full of delusion and I hypoxia here. Okay. But I, I then went on and ran the London Marathon last April. So it has been an incredible uh, uh, year, uh, I would say, two years. But right after the um, right after the London race, I tripped on a tree root near my home here and the Hudson Valley, um, and tore my gluteus minimus. And I think nature was saying, you know what, girl, just slow down, T just take it easy, you know, back off. So I backed off for the last five or six months, easy jogging, doing my core work, and I'm gearing up now. I'm going to run the 5K in Boston, and I'm going to run several 5Ks and then uh, a 10K at the Senior Games uh, in June. And then in November, uh, uh, I hope to be ready for a half marathon. So then we'll take it easy, and then we'll look at what the marathon looks like on the horizon. Then we'll I'd take like it easy. <laughs> yeah, I will. I look. I, I want to run all my life. Um, I really do want to be running when I'm 80 and 85. And um, I'm, as I say, I'm very grateful for my health, but I also want to take care of it. The, the point that we have to find is that as we age and we age actively, we know that people who stay active the longer they um, go have a longer life, a better life, a more optimistic life, a healthier life. But we want to make sure that we find the balance so that, um, you know, I don't fall over truths and I don't overtrain. 
So I, I'll find that sweet spot. And I must say, though, 2017, 2018 were anima for me. Fantastic. For sure, for sure. And I love that you just dropped, you won the New York City Marathon in 1974. Not only did you win the New York City Marathon, but you did it on a 100 degree day in three hours and seven minutes. Something else, a statistic that I find interesting is that uh, you've run the Boston Marathon in a time of 2.51. When I ran my first half marathon ever in 2008, it was just about that time. <laughs> Isn't it amazing, though, what the body can do? Yeah. I mean, I can distinctly remember, you know, when I ran my first mile, and I can distinctly remember when I ran my first mile in six minutes. And then I can remember, of course, training up and running that 251. I ran 633 minutes um, a mile for 26 miles. And I thought, holy Toledo, you know, if I can do that, how much talent exists out there um, among women if they only have the opportunity and belief in their own capability? See, the fascination was, you know, I mean, I'm physiologically fascinated by what we can do and what we can overcome, but I know I'm not talented. I, When I did that, I said, if I can run a 251, there are women out there who can run a 230. And when I said that, honestly, people said, you're smoking poppy. And I said, no, look, look at how it breaks down. And what we're also finding out, of course, is that women actually are extremely good, in fact, better than men at endurance, stamina, flexibility events. And we're seeing them win outright, 100-mile races, um, three-day races, 24-hour runs. And this is going to be very, very influential in terms of how the future sport looks. So when I uh, when I did that, my, my focus really, this 251, my focus really then became, became even stronger to create opportunities where women could emerge and we could get not only them out running, but we could get the event in the Olympic Games, which was my biggest goal at the time in my life. Right, right. So why don't we rewind it back, uh, back toward 1967 and what the year or two looked like leading up to that monumental Boston Marathon for you? Oh, well, it was hilarious, but it was very eye-opening. Um, my coach uh, was an ex-marathon runner. He was a 50-year-old mailman, a you know, wonderful, big-hearted guy, small, tiny. And he didn't believe any woman anywhere could run a marathon. And I kept telling him you know, that women had run marathons, not with any fanfare, um, and that even a woman named Roberta Gibb had jumped out of the bushes at Boston and run the race. And he simply didn't believe it. He always said, no dame ever ran, no marathon. And so I said, okay, um, I will show you in practice. And, he and said, where right. were you living at the time? Oh, I was a student at Syracuse University. I was okay. studying uh, journalism. Uh, we were running through canyons of snow. It was so cold. It was so bitterly cold. And it made me very tough. And he was very impressed with my toughness. So when I told him that I really wanted to run Boston, he was the one who really challenged me. He said, if I did it in practice, the distance in practice, um, he would be convinced and would take me to Boston. And he never, never in a million years thought that I could do it or I even wanted to do it really. But I did. And the day that we ran our 26 miles uh, in practice, we actually ran 31 miles because when we finished the first workout, I said, let's do another five. Let's keep going because I want to make sure when we go to Boston, nothing can stop us, which was an interesting thing to say. And I met it meta metaphorically, you know, like um, that we wouldn't get tired. And um, I had no idea that there, there was going to be anything untoward. 
And when we finished the workout, my, my coach passed out. And he said, women have hidden potential in endurance and stamina. And that's when we began to realize the longer I ran, the better I got relative to the men. And in fact, the men on the cross-country team with whom I was training didn't even want to come out with us if we were going to go more than 13 miles. Ah, you guys are crazy, they'd say. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then Arnie, my coach, um, was all business. And he said, okay, you got to sign up for the race. And I said, why can't we just go and just, you know, jump in? It looks like a big free for all to me. And he said, you, you know, you got to be crazy. This is the most serious race in the world next to the Olympic Games." And I said, okay. And he said, you're a member of the athletic federation. You got to sign up and, and pay your $2 entry fee and, and follow the rules. And I said, okay, okay, okay. Well, in the rule book, there was nothing about gender in the marathon. Right. And on right. the entry form, there was nothing about gender. And I said to Arnie, okay, gosh, I'm going to be noticed up in Boston, Arnie, wearing a number and all. And he said, I know, and I'm proud of you. It was really, really nice. It was, he was just, he was a guy who completely changed his attitude and was willing to take the risk and take me to Boston, take me under his wing. And he was taking a couple of guys from the cross country team and, um, and here we were. So the point of the entry form though, is this, is that I signed the entry form with my initials KB Switzer. And I was doing that not to defraud the officials, but because that's how I'd been signing my name for two reasons. One, my dad misspelled my name on my birth certificate. It was always <laughs> getting misspelled. I think you've noticed the E is not in the middle of the Catherine. Right. And, um, and the other reason is because when I was writing sports for my high school newspaper and then on to journalism school where I wanted to be a sports writer, I um, was reading also J.D. Salinger and E.E. E. Cummings and T.S. Eliot. And so it seemed to me that if you're really a cool writer, you signed your name with your initials. So Maybe I need to reevaluate what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> the, obviously, the officials thought the entry form had come from a guy, but not from a girl. So uh, that that was a coincidence. And of course, the other coincidence at Boston was up until last year, Emily, it was the worst conditions ever in the history of the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. So it was it was about 35 degrees, 34, with a headwind and sleet and snow and rain, and it was bitterly, bitterly cold. So you were soaked to the skin, but you still had snow piling up on your shoulders, and your hands were frozen. We, we looked like refugees. We had on everything we brought with us, and um, from a distance, just like last year, you probably couldn't tell me from the guys. Yeah. We all looked alike. We were all bundled up. And the officials uh, didn't see me, didn't call me out. They pushed me into the starting lineup. And it wasn't until about a mile and a half into the race when the press truck came through and was filming from the back of a flatbed truck that they saw me in the race wearing numbers and stopped, slowed down and began taking pictures. And we didn't think of anything else. We just kind of waved at them. But the race director was on an accompanying bus. And he completely lost his temper. His name was Jock Semple. He was a sort of feisty race director of the, of the race, regarded it as his baby, doesn't want anybody making a fool of him. And now here was this girl wearing numbers. He just lost it and, and threw into a rage and ran down the street and attacked me and tried to pull off my good numbers and screaming at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And what and were the people around you doing at that time? 
Well, but the men around us were shocked. They kind of looked like, what, what? And, and, and they were saying, hey, 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 you know, leave her alone, leave her alone. And Arnie was screaming at him, my coach, saying, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. He couldn't get him away. He just, the official batted Arnie away. But my boyfriend, who was running with me, part of the team, um, who, who shouldn't have been there, you know, he was only there because if his girlfriend could run 26 miles, he could run 26 miles. But he's a very talented. <laughs> very talented athlete and he just took out the official with the most amazing shoulder charge and sent him flying and Arnie looked at all of us and screamed run like hell and down the street we went and you know in the retelling it's very very funny but at the time it was extremely traumatic um especially for me it was traumatic for all of us but for me it was extremely traumatic because I was scared um uh I was embarrassed humiliated and then the press came, kept alongside of me on the press truck and really kept berating me and saying, when are you going to drop out? What are you trying to prove? What are you doing here? You know, this is a joke, right? Just a publicity stunt. And it was really, really hard. It was the, um, the eve of the second great women's liberation movement, the Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem movement, where people were saying women are always barging into places where they're not welcome. And they can't do it anyway. And I knew no matter what, even at 20, I knew. I just turned to my coach. I said, I have to finish this race. I have right. to finish this race. My hands, my knees, if, I, if, if, it, if that's what it takes. Because nobody's going to believe women can do it. Right. And it was a tremendous decision for a young girl. I was, I, you know, all through 2017, when the media was really, really, hot about me running again 50 years later and they said what what did you think what do you think about when you see that picture because there were lots of pictures taken of the incident because he did it in front of the press truck silly man but anyway um the when i look at the picture i i don't look at him attacking me or my boyfriend hitting him i look at my face and i'm thinking how could a 20 year old girl make a decision so strong in the face of such adversity. And I think it was because I'd been running since I was 12 and had that magic victory under my belt that nobody could take away from me. And i that's what I tell people. And um, that's what I try to impart to young girls and even old ladies. Did you know at the time that you would go on to run more marathons? Did you think that you would show up there and it would be kind of a one done situation or the second that you finished that you were hooked? No, I, I, in fact, it's interesting you asked that question. I had fallen in love with running and I'd fallen in love with distance running. I mean, nobody's going to run 31 miles in practice unless they love to run. And, um, and I just wanted to keep on going forever. And I felt like I could go forever. So I knew after Boston that I was going to just run all the time, but I didn't know what it would look like because I didn't know if it was going to be a hard fight or what. The, 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 it was hard uh, and bizarre. Because all the men in the race were so wonderful to me. You know, they were very welcoming. As they went by, they'd say, go for it. We're with you all the way. Or, I, hey, I, my, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. Can you give me some tips to get her started? So um, th- those were things that were, were resonating with me is that the population of people I was running with, the men on the cross-country team or the master's age guys I was running with, were, were very, very supportive. They They never... They never regarded me as the girl. I was just out there running with them. 
And uh, we just we just sort of share the secrets of our soul as running buddies do. And it was a wonderful time in an age of sexual contentiousness, very much like we are in now sometimes, where we found egalitarianism and inclusion uh, and and was totally natural, totally natural supporting each other. But no, interesting you asked that question, because when I crossed the finish line, I was met by a, a bunch of really irascible journalists. And one of them said just what you asked, but in a much nastier way. He said, this is just a one-off deal. Hey, you're not going to run another marathon. This is just a joke, right? And I said, there's nothing about 26 miles that's a joke. It's a tough road. And I said, and I'm going to run the rest of my life. You are going to someday read about a little 80-year-old lady who dropped dead in Central Park while she's running. And that's going to be me. Well, of course, now I die only get back. I'm up to 95 now. So, <laughs> but, but no, I knew I was going to run forever, you know? Taking a quick break from today's episode to give my sponsor, Athletic Greens, a little bit of love. I finally did it. I made smoothies this week with Athletic Greens. Now, before I tell you what was in my perfect smoothie, a reminder about what's in Athletic Greens. It's a greens powder. It's got 12 servings of fruits and vegetables. It's got prebiotics, probiotics, adaptogens, superfoods. So naturally, it's the perfect addition to a post-workout smoothie. Now, usually I just shake it up with 10 to 12 ounces of water, but I was feeling a little adventurous. So in the smoothie, I did just shy of a cup of almond milk, five ice cubes, very specific, vegan vanilla protein powder, of course, athletic greens, and then about three quarters of a cup of frozen pineapple. I blended that up in my Vitamix. And let me tell you, it tasted like a healthier, green-ish version of a pina colada, and I was so about it. You guys have got to try this for yourselves. The good news is that they're offering Hurdle listeners a special deal. It's 20 free travel packs, a $79 value with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to claim it. It's no code necessary. Again, athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Let's get back to it. Aside from that question from the journalist, what was everything else like after you finished that run? Well, it was very anticlimactic to finish the run because all through the run, there was this enormous tension of, are we going to be thrown out? Are the police going to intercede? Are they going to wait until we get near the finish and then divert us off the course and and, uh, keep us from finishing? Those are all things that went through our minds. And as it turns out, nothing happened there. And we came down and crossed the finish line. And we didn't hug each other and throw our arms up there and say, we did it, we did it. But we were all kind of quietly pleased. Three of us finished together. My boyfriend had dropped away, but he did eventually finish. Um, anyway, um, but it was then the journalists who were really crabby. And they, they took they took the joy out of it, of course, you know, telling me, what are you trying to prove again? What are you suffragette? They're very, very crabby and, and um, unwilling to understand, with the exception of one. And his name was Joe Kincannon. He was a young guy, about 25 years old, and he was covering his first Boston Marathon. And this guy went on to become the dean of marathon writing 
uh, until his death with the Boston Globe. So um, that that was interesting. And then and then we thought, okay, this is just a crazy incident. And we went back to a friend's house. We got a shower and some food and a couple of beers. And then we we had to hit the road and get back to Syracuse. We had class and work the next day. Right. Um, Boston in those days wasn't on Monday. It was always on April 19th. And so we had class the next day. And so, you know, we didn't get home until like two in the morning. And um, it wasn't until he stopped on the thruway in Albany. Uh, and we're getting some coffee and ice cream just to stay awake. When we saw the newspapers and front and back. Because all you know, in those days there were lots and lots of newspapers in those uh, wire racks in all of the in cafes, and there we looked at the papers and we all just looked at each other and we said, "Oh my God!" It was you know, every one of them on the front page. So that's when I thought, "Well, my life is going to change." Now the boys <laughs> were crowing, the boys were crowing like roosters in the barnyard. They thought it was really cool. Oh, look, we jacked that guy! Ah, oh, yay! Um, and I just got very quiet because I thought, oh, my gosh, my life is going to change. And did it ever? I mean, it was, it was the thing that changed my life. And, um, you know, you, you can do two things in life. You can, you can pick up the responsibility and make positive change or some kind of deliberate change with that. Or you can walk away from it. And I felt terribly responsible for what I had done and that I was going to try, try, try to make the good out of it. And I did. So I was, it took my whole life and it's, and I'm still doing it. There's still a long way to go because most of the women in the world still live in a fearful situation and, and running can really help them and it will continue to do that. But it's a, it's a big world and um, there's still a tremendous number of barricades and prejudices out there. Right. And you say responsible in what sounds to be like you felt guilty about what you had done. Is that how you felt? Not at all. Not at all. I felt the burden of responsibility. I felt uh, that it was going to be a lot of work, but I said no. No, I felt quite uh, delighted and happy, but resolute about what I had done. I didn't go to Boston to prove anything, but that's what happened. And now I really needed to follow up with it. If I walked away from it, it would have been a disgrace. Instead, I embraced it full on and said, all right, I'm going to make positive change here. But it was not easy because I was expelled from the Athletic Federation. I got a lot of hate mail, but I also got a lot of wonderful mail. And I got tremendous support from guys who were runners. And that made all the difference. And just piece by piece, step by step, we started making that change. I think what I mean by responsibility, and this is a very, very important thing in terms of business, too, is people always have an opportunity to do something better or, or to change some social injustice. We all are surrounded by it. Most people will say, oh, I'm too busy or it's too hard, and they walk away from it. Picking it up and making positive change is not easy, and it takes a lot of time, and it's hands-on, nitty-gritty work. And I was willing to do that. I often say that you know the reason I got the women's marathon in the Olympic Games is I was a person who was willing to lick the envelopes at night. You know, <laughs> right, right. You have to, you have to, you have to take all of it. You can have great ideas, but you've got to make it happen, and it's piece by piece. The devil's always in the details. 
Got you. Okay. So obviously you said that you got banned from the BAA. I know that in 1972, that's when women were finally allowed to run in the Boston Marathon for the first time. And then your personal best time shortly after that, 251.37 at Boston in 1975. Yes. So getting women into the Boston Marathon took five years. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing because people like Sarah Mae Berman and Nina Cusick and Others were pushing down to three hours, even under three hours, and they still weren't official. And finally, we did our legislative work and got um, the Amateur Athletic Union to admit women in long-distance running. And there were some provisos, but we we managed to work those in, too. We're finally, we finally were official in Boston in 72, and then became the, the big push to get women in a lot of other events. And my dream was then to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games. And what, what I did with, with my skills is first, you know, I decided to try to become a good athlete so I would have the credibility of being a good athlete. Um, I knew I was, I knew if the women's marathon got into the Olympic Games, I would never have the talent to, to make the team. I just knew there were some incredible women runners out there who didn't know they were good. And if we could create the opportunity for them. So I wrote a very big business proposal to Avon Cosmetics and um, took it out. Uh, to them and they hired me and we created a global series of races, 400 races in 27 countries. And we used the data and statistics from those races to convince the International Olympic Committee to get the Women's Marathon in the Olympic Games. So people who say, oh, let's get this event in the Olympic Games, I say, yeah, sure, you can get your event in the Olympic Games if you're willing to do your homework and prove to the IOC that you have the international representation and the events in all those different countries. It was really, really uh, very, very um, tedious, but also wonderful because people would say in a place like Thailand or the Philippines or Brazil, the women in our country don't want to run and they would come out by their thousands. And, you know, it, we, we just changed everybody's notions and women's most, most importantly about, about running. They, they had fun. They were, it was non-intimidating. Um, and they got pretty good too. So it, uh, it was amazing. Um, and I believe, frankly, when, Joan Benoit Samuelson came into that Olympic Stadium uh, for the first time in, uh, in the Women's Marathon, the inaugural one in 1984. I think that moment was as important as giving women the right to vote because the vote was about her social and cultural acceptance in 1920. And this was now the physical acceptance in 1984, where we realized women had equality in the most difficult event in the Olympic Games with men. And everybody in the whole world watching on television knows how far 42.2 kilometers or 26.2 miles is. And they know it's a long way. Right. You know, right. you understand distance. You understand distance. And they said, holy Toledo hero women running out. You know, it's amazing. And after working that hard to get the marathon for women to be a part of the games, you were actually uh, one of the television commentators for the 1984 games. Is that right? When it came time for the Olympic marathon, ABC did not have uh, a commentator. They said, you know, we have this new event called the Women's Marathon, but we don't have anybody here who knows anything about it. And I just looked at them and I held up my hand. I said, I know a lot about it. And they said, okay, you're hired. So, so there I was, you know, kind of with a blazer and microphone and Al Michaels and, um, and doing the, the commentary. And that, you know, I had been doing uh, bits and pieces of TV, but 
that was that was the big one. I, and from that, I've done several other Olympics and, and world championships and stuff like that. But more interestingly is that I think, not more interestingly, but also interesting is I've done the uh, commentary of the Boston Marathon for 41 consecutive years. And this year I've officially retired. So <laughs> I, 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 you know what I said? I said, when an American woman finally wins the Boston Marathon again, I'm retiring. And when Desi Linden won last year, I looked at our producer. I said, that's the end of the road for me. <laughs> oh, man. So so obviously you mentioned you're going to be running the 5K, but what else are you going to be doing on Marathon Monday? Oh, we've got so much. Mostly my efforts are going to be with 261 Fearless. So let me tell you about 261 Fearless. Who would have ever imagined that that bib number that the official tried to rip off of me would become a magic number, meaning fearless in the face of adversity. I never would have imagined that. For for 45 years, that, that number was three digits. And suddenly people began telling me it made them feel fearless and that they were wearing that on their back in their next race and how running had changed their lives. And, and they they just used that number as a symbol. And I thought, how how interesting. I wonder what this really means. And actually what it does mean is that we've all been told at one time in our life or the other that, you know, we're not good enough or we're not welcome or we're not cool. And then we go run and we feel like we can do anything when we can't. So we took this sense of spirit and took not the number because the word fearless was always being used with it. And we created a nonprofit called 261 Fearless where we reach out around the world, different villages, cities, countries, to offer women the opportunity to take the first step. And, you know, so many women live in a fearful situation and they think they can't do anything. And we're saying, tell her she can't. Take her by the hand, bring her out for an afternoon, uh, one, one day a week, and get her to move with you. Walk, run, talk, whatever. And it is quite life-changing because running is transformational. And sometimes people just need to have that moment to take that first leap. And, you know, I say that this this fearful woman may be in a different country, but she also could be your next-door neighbor. And there, and even in your workplace, she may be competent in so many areas, but she may be so fearful about her capability. And running, when you feel empowered, it changes everything in your life. You feel like you can get a better education or a better job or apply for something that's better in your office or leave a bad relationship. All of those things, it gives you the courage to do. So that's what we're doing with 261 Fearless. And I've got a whole team of women who are running here in Boston, and they're raising funds with charity bids to um, help fund the foundation, which is going gangbusters around the world. We're already in 11 countries with over 2,000 women involved. It's terrific. That's awesome. That's so awesome. And I know when you ran the Boston Marathon in 2017, you were running with some of the, the women from 261 Fearless as well. We had 125 people on our team. We had 118 women and seven intrepid guys. <laughs> and we really, we really wanted these guys to run with us. And they, they really wanted to run with us too, because I, it was sort of a gesture to the guys who had helped me so much in 1967, the the guys surrounding us in the immediate team, uh, which were so wonderful. 
Right, right. And obviously, I mean, you've made such an outstanding career uh, from your passion for running, but when you're not running and when you're not speaking and when you're not inspiring, what are some things that Catherine likes to do that have nothing to do with running? Well, first of all, you know, there's a huge frustration in my life, which is that my house is a mess. <laughs> I really love to clean it up. And it's, it's, it's tedious because there's a lot of papers and photographs and incredible memorabilia. So where is that stuff going to go and how do you sort it? And it always takes too much time. So that's a frustration, but also something I take great joy in is finally clearing out a drawer or a box or something. Anyway, um, but by the by, what do I love? You know, I really love film and I really love theater. Um, just a few days ago, I took off a day and went into the city with my husband, Roger, who is a Roger Robinson, terrific, terrific writer, by the way. He's just, just out with a new book called When Running Made History and um, a fabulous book. Everybody's loving this book. Anyway, we just took the day and went in and we saw a fabulous production of Julius Caesar in the city and had dinner with friends. So I, I would say film uh, and theater is a joy. And honestly, reading reading all the time. I, I just try whenever I can to go through books. And actually, um, I'm frustrated that I don't have enough time to read as much as I want. But, you know, if you just read 10 minutes every night before you go to sleep, you can whip through a lot of books. And Awesome. And then obviously, you know, a lot of people for some time now have followed your journey uh all the way back from Boston till now. When they look at you, they see the first woman that ran the Boston Marathon registered. But when you look in the mirror, what is it that you see? You know, I see a pretty ordinary person, you know, increasingly wrinkled. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have the face and the legs she used to have. Um, but I say, cheapers, you know, I've, I've had a really quite amazing life. And the women I have met and men have given back so much to me. Um, and, and what I, I think is, you know, I'm a really very ordinary person. I'm not talented, but I just am a good example of somebody who can dig deep, can get down there, be persistent. I'm like a dog with a bone and, um, we can all be like that. Just get the job done. People have said to me the most amazing things, kind of outrageous. They say I was destined for that moment in the Boston Marathon in 1967. And that is such baloney. You know, that was a moment of incredible coincidence. And and what I say is destiny is really finishing the job. And destiny is also not ignoring the responsibility that once you take on, once you take on a project or you made a decision to do something, you need to stay the course, stick it out and make it good as much as good as you possibly can. I love that. All right. Well, the question I always wind down with here on the podcast, you have the opportunity right now to give the Catherine running that race one piece of advice looking back on that hurdle moment right now. What would you tell her? Well, it wouldn't be on looking on that one moment in the race because she did exactly what she should have done, which is to put her head down and finish the race. And that's exactly what I would tell people to do. But over the course of my life, the one thing I would tell Catherine, the young Catherine, is you don't have to make it quite so hard. You know, you have a lot more gifts than you think you do. And also you have a lot more resources out there with other people where you can talk about things and share this burden. 
for so long, I thought it was just me and without much support. And actually, there are so many wonderful people who would are always happy to share the burden. So that's, I think, what I would tell her now. Amazing. Well, Catherine, thank you so, so much for your time. I know you're quite busy this time of year and I wish you so much luck in that 5K and obviously a wonderful day out there on Marathon Monday. It's uh, it's truly special. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us at the Boston Marathon. Please take a moment and leave a quick review by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life and I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. Catherine, where do they find you on social? How do they keep up with you wherever you may be? Please go to 261fearless.org. That's the best way. Awesome. Thank you so much. You can find me on Instagram at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.